Welcome to this week's episode of Getting on the Green, your real estate podcast with your host, Craig Merlin. On this week's podcast, we have one of my close friends, Tim O'Reilly. He's an old college buddy of mine, um, but he has been in the business longer than I have, and I thought he would be a perfect individual to come in, teach us a little bit about his track that he took to get into the real estate world, as well as having a different um, market perspective, because he is on the Northeast Coast in New York. Um, So to give a little bit of background on Tim, he was uh, born in Millstone, New Jersey. He's now, like I mentioned, uh, living in Manhattan in New York, so he's in the the center of it all. Um, So before further ado, I want to welcome in the man, the myth, the legend, Tim O'Reilly. Welcome to the show. Wow, what an introduction, buddy. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Uh, super happy to be on. Big fan of the podcast. Um, wish you best success moving forward, my man. Appreciate it. Um, so how about you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself that I didn't touch on. Oh, I also didn't mention um, that Tim went to George Washington University, uh, so I usually give the educational background. Um, so that's where he and I went to college and we met each other. Uh, but Tim, tell us a little bit about um, basically what you studied, um, you know, and a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, so I was I was a history major at GW. So um, when I got out of college, I realized quickly I probably didn't learn anything useful at all <laughs> cool that I could use in the real world. Um, and that's sort of how my real estate career began. Um, I own a boutique real estate brokerage in New York City now. Uh, we're in Herald Square, which is right across the street from Macy's, for those not familiar with it. What's, um, what's it called? I started, I'm sorry? What's, what's the business called? Oh, it's called Meraki Real Estate. Um, but yeah, so I started, I started um, right after college, I started working for a hospitality company in the hospitality industry. I was working at the front desk of a youth hostel. Um, and I kind of fell into real estate. The owner of the hostel uh, owned a bunch of real estate throughout the country, really, but mostly in New York, um, with their primary assets being multifamily assets. And he used the front desk of the hostel and the office of the hostel as his leasing office. So you'd constantly have brokers coming in and out, picking up keys, dropping off checks, um, doing deals, dropping off leases, picking up leases. And that's how I really got introduced to it in, uh, in New York City, in Manhattan. Um, I noticed a lot of inefficiencies that he had with how he was running his business. Um, for example, he was faxing listings to brokerages, and this was, this was in 2013. Um, <laughs> so he was a little bit outdated. Uh, he was still using typewriters for leases. Um, he didn't really have a centralized listing. Um, if you're not familiar with the New York real estate market, it's a little bit tricky, especially the rental industry, because we have things that are called open listings, where it's kind of a free-for-all and any broker can go and show them. They're not really exclusively represented by a brokerage company. So that's how he was doing everything. He was faxing all his listings out to, to brokerages, and then they were just kind of bringing clients that they had, but he had no online presence. He had nobody exclusively renting him. And, um, you know, I told him there was a better way to do it. And that's how I kind of got my start. And that's how I picked up one of my biggest clients. Honestly, so he became your client? Yeah. So he owns, he owns probably about 1500 apartments throughout Manhattan. 
Um, and it was a slow process. I mean, I started working there right after college. Uh, I didn't even have a real estate license. So my, my, my fall into real estate, most people kind of, especially real estate sales, it's a career you don't really pick. Usually you kind of fall into it or you do it on the side. And that's kind of how it started for me. Um, and even more so for me, because I never really got trained or went to a traditional firm. So as I was working for him and working the front desk at the hostel, um, I kind of came up with this idea to get my real estate license and just kind of prove to him that I could also show the apartment, especially the rentals in New York City. You're dealing with agents that a lot more times they're doing it part time or, you know, they're kind of foreigners or don't have the best education or they're doing it at second jobs. So it's not like when you're dealing in the high-end sales market where you're dealing with um, very professional people all the time. So I knew it was a market that I would have a better chance of breaking into was the rental market in the beginning. Um, so my uncle's an attorney in New York. So he was able to open up a brokerage license because if you pass the bar, you automatically qualify in New York to state to have a brokerage license. And I hung my license with him. I gave him a little cut. And I had no training. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and I was off to the races. And then over time, gradually over four or five years, I picked up 90 to 95% of his portfolio. And we exclusively represent most of his buildings now. That's great. Um, so you were saying you kind of were picking things up left and right as you were going through it and kind of learning from errors, which I think is potentially one of the better ways that you can learn and actually get the information ingrained in your head. Um, but do you have any um, mentors or influencers or something along those lines that helped you throughout your, your education or something like that in your real estate career so far? Like has anybody helped you specifically in either business or real estate or something like that? Yeah. So, I mean, I've definitely not had a traditional kind of path to how I've gotten to where I've gotten. Um, you know, I've been around real estate my whole life. My dad's involved in the management side of it. He also owns a few multifamily properties. Um, so I've been around it my whole life. My mom is a real estate broker as well out in Jersey. Um, so she sells homes. So I had some kind of idea of what the business was like. I never worked for a traditional firm. I went from hanging my license with my uncle to starting my own real estate company, um, which it's kind of a catch 22. Like I, uh, I think it has some good things that have benefited me not, not really having that traditional experience. And then it's had some things that probably have stunted my growth a lot. And I would have maybe been further along faster if I would have had a mentor that just kind of cut through all the weeds for me. Um, with that being said, I do think we live in a time now, especially the past, you know, three, four years where you can find pretty much anything online. And, you know, I would, constantly look up, you know, the Ryan Serhants of the world, what they were doing, um, you know, the Frederick Eklund, the Eklund Goomstein, Douglas Elliman, they were a big influence on me and how they were um, handling their business. Um, and also some some other smaller firms in New York City that I kind of modeled my behavior off of, um, like City Habitats is a big firm in New York City that's owned by Corcoran Group, and they started originally just exclusively doing rentals. Um, so, those are kind of the people I follow. Now I follow um, a guy called Ricky Carruth. He's down in Gulf Shores in uh, Alabama. He sells 100 properties a year. He does a lot of good free training online uh, on YouTube. And I'm always just trying to learn. So I didn't have a one mentor per se, but I was always reading and following the industry leaders and trying to pick up anything I could. 
along the way. And I've always been comfortable going into a space and trying to figure it out on my own along the way, um, which sometimes is a good thing. And sometimes it, it takes more time doing that. So looking back on my career, you know, I'm still very early into my mm-hmm. career here, only seven, seven or eight years. But looking back in the early stages, I think uh, my trajectory would have been a lot different. I don't think necessarily I'd own my own firm if I didn't do it on my own way, which I love, but I might be doing different types of things and working for a big firm. Um, so it's all kind of what's important to you and what you value. Interesting. So so you mentioned before that there might have been some things that you might have learned quicker or something along those lines if you had that formal, um, I guess, big firm training and in, in that type of uh, experience, I guess. Is there anything specific you can remember that you were like, oh, man, if I just worked for this, for like a big firm, this would be so much easier versus you having to do it yourself as, you know, in theory, the only person that, you know, that's... Yeah, I mean, it was so the major thing, there's a lot of little things, um, but the major thing is definitely, I, I feel like I would have transi- transitioned into sales a lot quicker if I worked for a firm as opposed to building up a rental business. Um, you know, now we do both. for about 50-50 in what we do, sales and rentals. But for the longest time, I was primarily just a rental broker and my business was going after exclusive landlords. Um, so trying to get landlords uh, as clients and represent their buildings so then I'd have the tenants come to me. Um but along those lines, you know, there's a lot more things you have to do when you're running a business, uh, a brokerage, um, as opposed to just working as an agent. Like I needed to get a website going. I needed to, you know, have an LLC formed. Um, I didn't really know even when I was first starting how basic commission splits work. If you were co-broking a rental with somebody, I didn't know the difference between, like I explained before, open listings versus exclusive listings. Um, there's no MLS in Manhattan, which makes it even crazier, uh, and very more difficult, uh, much more difficult to navigate. So the fact that there's no MLS, there's a bunch of, there's probably like three or four systems that centralize all the listings, but you have to know which ones are open and you don't have access to that unless you pay for those systems. So that's, you know, you're talking anywhere from 500 to 600, $700 a month. I didn't have access to that in the beginning, so I didn't even know. So I was on Zillow. Um, so it was just a very steep learning curve um, that I probably could have sped through a lot faster. But like I said, I, I was doing it part-time in the beginning. So a lot of the firms that I reached out to, they didn't want a part-time worker. They wanted somebody that was going to be there 24-7. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't want to give up 50% of my money either, So which is the... Yeah, that's definitely a huge leap getting into the real estate world. The potential, you know, when you're working solely on commission, you really don't know when your next paycheck's coming in. So it's definitely a leap of faith. Okay, so what are the, I guess, tangibles or intangibles that separate a successful broker from the unsuccessful ones? I see a lot of, you know, you see the one to two year brokers and then the 10, 20, 30 year brokers. You don't see too many you know, three, four, five-year um, tenured brokers. Uh, so what are some intangibles or tangibles, frankly, that uh, you think separate the successful brokers from the unsuccessful ones? That's a good question. Um, I think it's a combination of things. Um, I think a lot of people get into real estate 
with a bad idea of the job. I think a lot of people think it's just, you know, going to be easy. You could sell a few houses and in no time you'll be making six figures. Um, there's a lot of work that goes into being a real estate agent and it's a particular type of personality. I mean, not everybody can work with uh, just on commission and, and no base salary at all. Um, no health benefits, um, no safety net, uh, going, you know, months in between deals. So I think definitely when you're starting off, you want to either start it part-time like I did or make sure you have enough money saved to get you through that. So I think just personality-wise, it's not meant for everybody and people go into it looking at it the wrong way. Um, you definitely shouldn't go into real estate thinking you're going to make a lot of money until probably your second or third year uh, when you get your feet under you. Um, I think that's a big thing. I think the other thing is people don't spend their time wisely doing the things that they should do. Um, you're your own boss. So yes, you'll have some uh, guidance from your brokerage and a good brokerage should tell you how you should be spending your time. But too many agents get caught up in the marketing and the making sure their business cards are okay or making sure their website's okay or, you know, making sure they're doing whatever on Instagram. And I think, you know, your most important job as a real estate agent or a broker is just to talk to people, connect to people, and generate as many leads as you can. If you're generating leads, eventually you're going to be successful. So I think that's one thing that all the top brokers do across commercial, residential, any any facet of real estate, they generate tons of leads and they always have something in their pipeline. So they have numerous deals waiting. If one falls apart, it's not going to kill them. Um, and they're, they're hustlers, they're hustlers, they're go-getters. They, uh, they don't take no for an answer and they just, they're super consistent year in, year out. And, um, I think that's, that's a rare quality and it's not an easy industry. It's just not an easy industry. Yeah. I think that's definitely one misconception is, you know, people say, Oh, you know, I'll sell, one three million dollar house and i'll get three percent commission you know so i'm set for my year on one deal that shouldn't be too hard right but then you see you know outside economic effects you see squabbling within the potential deal this and that there's a lot of a lot of uh, roadblocks that uh, could come up from point a to point z basically 100 percent, 100 percent. and a lot of people too when they're first starting they don't realize you know 50% of that, usually if you're a new agent, is going straight to your brokerage. Mm -hmm. um, you have to pay for marketing expenses. You know, you have to pay taxes on top of that. Um, so even you sell one $3 million house at 3%, you're not getting as much money as you thought you were getting. And a $3 million house in most parts of the country is a super high expensive listing or a really good high quality client. I mean, even New York, $3 million is, is a great client. Um, so it's, People go into it with rose-colored glasses, and, and it's, uh, I think that's the biggest hindrance to and why people quit so quickly after. And I think during this time, you're going to see a lot of agents fall out of the business after this whole pandemic is over. Okay, so speaking on the pandemic, let's shift gears slightly. Um, we're at the end of May in 2020. Um, so what is the New York real estate market like in New York during COVID? Because uh, throughout my shows, basically, I've had a touch to South Florida or Florida in general. Um, so I definitely wanted to get you on to give both the listeners as well as myself a better understanding about what the real estate market is like, A, in another um, state and B, in a major uh, COVID center 
like New York. So what's what's the real estate market like in New York going on right now? Um, well, there's a couple facets to it. One, the real estate market before this whole thing happened, we were definitely in a buyer's market for at least a year and a half, two years. Um, I felt we were really starting, and I think a lot of brokers shared the sentiment that we were really starting to pull out of it in the beginning of this year. Um, you know, February February of this year, contract inventory contracts were up 14% year over year. Um, new supply was up 6% years over year. So there was a lot of good, feel good things going into the spring market, which in New York City, the spring market is the selling market. That's like the hottest season. So, um, a lot is a lot of the deals that. So New York's also a, an interesting market because we deal the primary inventory. Most of the inventory is co-op, so co-ops can take anywhere from three to four months to close. Um, so a lot of the data that comes out is usually three or four months behind. Um, so people that are in contract might go into contract January, February. They're not going to close till April, May. Um, so people that are in contract now. And that signed a contract before COVID are kind of coming around to closing now. But in between that, there's been a lot of negotiation. So, you know, I've seen people that are involved in deals and our clients that have negotiated anywhere between, you know, 2 and 10% on the super high end of the market, maybe, you know, 15 million, 10 million, 15 million dollars plus. You're seeing a little bit higher uh, negotiation anywhere from, you know, 15 to 20%, depending on the deal. Um, the rest of the market, anybody that wasn't in contract before this happened is kind of completely on pause. I mean, uh, new supplies down 86 and a half percent year over year, new contract activities down 80% year over year for the month of April. Um, and I don't see that lifting anytime soon. I think most people are kind of doing a wait and see approach. If you are a buyer and you do have some money, where I would look if I was you is, you know, new development, condo new development, which was struggling even before this. And now these sponsors and developers are sitting with a lot of empty units and you can get a really good deal if you know what you're doing and you're working with a professional and, you know, you're serious about buying something. Um, that's really the only market that I could see you being able to take advantage. All the resale market is pretty much, I don't think, you're going to see anything move significantly until the fall. Um, most people are in their second homes. Most people aren't coming back to the office until at least September. Um, a lot of companies have already said, you know, we're kind of going to shoot until till the end of the summer. And I really don't see much change in the market until the fall. And then we'll see what the effect is. But I expect that the buyer's market is going to continue at least to the end. Okay, and Tim, just to just to clarify, you're doing residential housing, correct? Not commercial real estate. Yeah, so we do residential. We don't do. I mean, we do a little bit of commercial. Um, we do some investment sales. The investment sale market. I can talk on it a little bit. I'm not. Uh, you know, obviously, residential is definitely my forte. But um, the commercial or investment multifamily market is completely dead. Um, to kind of even on top of that. There's been some unfriendly landlord, unfriendly uh, rent regulations and rent laws that have passed in the past year that those were in the process of being challenged um, in the Supreme Court of New York. So that's kind of also put a drag on the investment sale market as well. 
Um, so it's really not a great time. I mean, Class A office in New York City, which at one time was one of the safest investments you can make only a couple of months ago in the whole world. And now it's looking like, you know, you have tenants like Facebook, which uh, we have a huge technology sector here, Facebook, Twitter, Google, saying that their employees don't have to come back to work until the end of the year and maybe indefinitely. So I think it's really going to affect how people view office space. And I think from even a brokerage standpoint, I think it's really going to affect some of the bigger firms in the city that have a heavy real estate footprint. Um, I just don't see how they're going to get back to normalcy, at least before the fall. Um, and then, you know, they're really going to have to decide if they want to place that much value on, on office space and real estate, which in the long term will affect the residential market because the reason most people live here in such an expensive market is because you're close to the offices and that's where people have jobs. So it's all cyclical and it's all dependent on one another. And right now I think um, we're still kind of in the middle of it. Everybody's sort of in a wait and see mode. I think a lot's going to depend on if there's a second wave in the fall. Um, but right now the sales market's pretty much on hold until at least the fall, I would say. And and so is this? Do you do you see this just as being a New York reaction, um, being basically on standstill, or are you saying in general? Well, I mean, there's been a lot of people speculating about exodus from dense areas, um, you know, cities. Um, uh-huh, I've definitely heard about that. It's interesting. I know. I know a lot of like high end clients have been fleeing to Miami right now. Miami is uh, one of the major cities in the U.S. So I think, um, you know, Miami, Texas, I think Austin, uh, Dallas, those those areas will do well, and I think a lot of people are going to relocate there. As far as New York's long term future, you know, the only comparison I can really think of is is nine eleven. Um, you know, a lot of people were freaked out about the New York City real estate market after 9-11 and that people weren't going to want to live vertically anymore. People weren't going to want to live in office, work in office towers like that anymore. Um, and, you know, things go away. People forget. Um, I say, I'd say the bigger threat in the long term to New York City real estate instead of the coronavirus um, would be the transportation revolution that's probably going to happen over the next five to ten years and when it's no longer necessary to live in a city like New York. So I think that's a serious concern that investors and, um, you know, resident owners have to take seriously uh, when they're thinking about purchasing because it is such an inflated market because of the location. Well, it's an interesting perspective talking about the, um, like the, the transportation and how that could affect New York because, like you mentioned, I mean – Manhattan has millions of people living in it and millions more um, transporting in every day just for their jobs. So if they don't have to necessarily, you know, live there in the packed areas and they can have more space and it's easy to transport in and out. I mean, you're right. That's not that's a perspective I didn't even think about um, thinking about the transportation. Um, But let's kind of go back a little bit. uh, So what do you what do you see going forward kind of with. New York and I guess let's let's step away from New York and let's say the United States as a whole. What do you what do you see moving forward for your real estate as a whole? Are people going to be 
you know, changing the way we live totally or is stuff going to kind of go back to how it was, like you said, um, after 9-11, you know, people somewhat changed and then kind of reverted back to their ways. Are you seeing major changes or? I think people in general have a short memory and they forget things. So I think in the short term, you might see a shift in consumer behavior. But in the long term, I really don't think it'll affect people that much. Um, I think it will place an emphasis. If anything, it'll place an emphasis on, you know, having a nice home and maybe investing a little bit more in your home and making sure you have a little bit of an outdoor space or, and that, that'll definitely be something that a lot of people will think about in the short term. In the long term, I think people will forget. Um, and I don't think it'll be a major factor moving forward. That's just human nature. Um, I don't think there will be a drastic change of our lifestyle or our culture from this. I could be wrong. Um, but that's everything I know of being a history major tells me, <laughs> people don't change so, <laughs> so um probably we're going to be back in the same exact spot at some point or the other. okay um so tell me a little bit about your actual work life how has your work life changed because of this i know mine has changed because i'm now working from home um like 99 percent of the time i only go into the office when i absolutely have to um so how as a owner of a brokerage how has that changed your life yeah, well, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's been a blessing in disguise. I mean, the one good thing that I can take away from this is I have a lot of less busy work, you know what I mean? Just kind of keeping up with the motions of running a business day to day. And um, it's allowed me a lot of time to kind of step back and really focus on the, the three or four core things that I need to do to drive my business forward. Like we said before, with I think a lot of agents um, don't really focus on the things that move the needle for their business. I feel like I was doing that in my day-to-day life and how I was uh, how I was running my business as well. So in that respect, it's been great. I've been able to kind of really focus on what's important and the value we bring to our agents and also, you know, generating leads, how we do it. Um, I think, you know, we're make, we've started to make a big shift towards uh, generating leads digitally over the past few years, and now um, that's starting to pay dividends, and it's a good thing too. Um, so that's definitely something that I've been focused on a lot. Um, growing our social footprint is something I've been focused on a lot throughout this. And I think, you know, the most important thing I've been doing um, is just staying in touch with my clients, honestly, giving them a call, seeing how they're doing, um, following up with them, trying to increase my sphere. Um, it's really allowed me to step back and not be so busy running around and caught up in the rat race. Um, so it's been a blessing, but it's, it's also been tough because that's how you make money in this business is by running around and hustling and showing apartments and listing apartments. Um, so I'm eager to get back to work and have some semblance of normalcy back in my life. But I am also kind of grateful that I was able to take this time and kind of wide lens it and see what we weren't doing well and where we can improve things. And I think anybody that's being productive about this time has kind of taken that approach. And I think a lot of people would agree that it's, you know, you realize how inefficient and just crazy the things you were doing sometimes were. So that, that's definitely been something that's been a blessing in disguise. Hey, uh, uh, tell me about like the regulations of New York. Are you allowed to show a property at this point or no? 
So we're not allowed to show until the near pause was just extended until June 7th. Um, so we're not allowed to show at all until then. Um, we are doing virtual showing, um, you know, Zoom showing, but it's also difficult um, unless the apartment is unoccupied, then we're not really getting in. Um, closings have been difficult. We're finally getting closings done remotely. Um, New York's very antiquated. Real estate in gener general is very antiquated. So there's not a, you know, there's not really a streamlined process or system um, to in place that helps get deals across the line. Um, so I think that's another good thing that's come out of this too. I think you're going to see a lot more, you know, docu signs in New York City instead of signing contracts in person and having them carried over. Just little things like that that will help and make real estate transactions much more efficient. Yeah, I know that that's how uh, I closed on an investment property of mine at the beginning of COVID. And we did a remote closing, I guess you can call it. Um, we signed on my side at our house and it was notarized by a notary who was in her car while we were signing it. So she was able to witness it while social distancing. And then we sent the documents over to the seller and they finalized theirs. And it, it was definitely weird. It was different than when I closed on the property I'm living in now, um, but it was it was I guess doable. And if that's the new norm, then you know so be it. Um, yeah, and and just like you said, doable. I mean, I think so many times we try and find reasons why something can't happen, and then when something like this happens, it forces us to find solutions. So I think uh, the real estate industry hasn't been too affected by the technology revolution like other industries have uh, and I think that that's definitely something that's going to change in the future and it's going to get sped up because of this so it's that's a good thing for the industry I think for sure all right Tim well we're getting uh, towards the end of our time unfortunately um, can you tell us a little something that you'd like to plug about yourself uh, maybe you know something you're doing or you know, whatever, a personal plug? Yeah, like I said, we were kind of a little bit late to the social media and uh, the, you know, digital game. So we're trying to catch up and get back into it. So if you follow us at Meraki Realty NYC on Instagram, um, you could definitely find some good insights there. We do a lot of educational stuff about first-time homebuyers um, and also a lot of data about the New York City real estate market. Um, so that's definitely a good place to get some more information from us and uh that's pretty much it okay tim i'll also link uh, your information in the information section of this episode's podcast uh so our listeners can find both your company as well as your instagram and you um but i want to thank you for coming on i really enjoyed this we don't speak to each other enough so we need to you know talk more often uh, but it was definitely a pleasure having you on this show uh, today, you giving your insight and your expertise. And they were honestly different from a lot of the, the points that you made were different from the way that, for instance, my brain works. I didn't think about the technology or the uh, the transportation, but that's that's definitely stuck with me. Um, so I want to thank you for giving me those perspectives and different ways of thinking. Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks for having me on. And uh I'm happy to I'm happy to do it again. So just give me a call and 
hopefully uh, we'll get back on here sometime when things are a little bit more normal. Yeah, that would be nice. Um, so to all of our listeners, thank you very much for listening to this episode uh, with myself and Tim O'Reilly. Um, we will have more episodes posted very soon. Awesome guests coming up. If you haven't seen the past episodes, please go back, listen to them, um, give us a like. We're hearing some great feedback um, on all of our sources. So keep sending me your feedback. Um, basically, any ideas for future podcasts or future guests, I'd love to hear it. Um, other than that, we will see you next time on the green.